Welcome to How We Run, the podcast about nonprofit success. I'm Trent Stamp, CEO of the Eisner Foundation. And I'm Julie Lacatur, and I help nonprofits with strategy, fundraising, and digital media. On today's episode, we meet co-host Trent Stamp, CEO of the Eisner Foundation, talking about his career in the nonprofit field. And we're joined by Nancy Goodhart from Engage. Nancy talks to us about Engage's intergenerational model that brings artists into senior centers. And the question I had for Nancy was, how do you maintain program quality with a large variety of volunteers and a large variety of locations? So we are here with Trent Stamp, my co-host. Hi, Trent. How are you? I'm well, Julie. How are you? Good, good. So for this first episode, I thought it might be fun to talk about you. Oh. (laughs) Surprise. (laughs) Is there not something better we could talk about? There's nothing better we can talk about. Okay. What would you like to talk about? About me? Yeah, I would like to talk about your career in the nonprofit sector. I got to where I am today by accident, I guess. Um, After I was a Teach for America Corps member, I went off to work in the federal government. I worked for Social Security Administration. I worked for a member of Congress. And I wanted to do public service broadly defined as what I thought was working for the government. And somewhere in there, Teach for America called me up and convinced me to come back and work in management for the organization. So I went back as the director of communications, vice president for communications. I'd had some government training in that field. Um, And so I went back there and that got me back into the nonprofit world. And from there, I found a, a, a lot of inefficiencies. I found that the sector wasn't as mature as I was hoping it would be. Oddly, I found that the government or the government was perhaps more sophisticated in terms of how it was measuring itself, perhaps because they were accountable to taxpayers as opposed to being accountable to private donors. And so somewhere in there, I decided to start Charity Navigator, which was um, designed to be kind of the equivalent of U.S. News and World Report, what they do for colleges, but to do it for nonprofits and charities. People were looking for third-party evaluators, and it just seemed crazy to me that in a sector of multiple billions of dollars, there was no real third-party evaluator rating charities. So I had this great vision that I would rate charities at Charity Navigator, and um, we had some bumps along the way. It didn't quite come out exactly as I'd hoped it would be, but I built America's largest charity rating service. Um, You have to remember that 9-11 happened in that period. The tsunami happened in that period. um, And people were looking for ways to react, not by rushing down and registering for the draft like they did after Pearl Harbor, but by writing a check to try to help out people who who needed help. Hurricane Katrina happened, which was the largest philanthropic response that we'd ever seen in the United States at that point. And so they gave me an opportunity to talk a lot about what makes a good charity, what makes a bad charity and how to direct money to those types of organizations. So you were feeling like in that responsive philanthropy, people were making decisions that were too emotional or like just uninformed. People were making decisions based on what they saw on their television. They wanted to be helpful. They were sitting in their house. Most of these disasters were localized. Um, They were affecting places that were far away, but people were good and they wanted to do good things, but they didn't know what to do. And a lot of times they were giving to whoever was the loudest, whoever had the best media platform, whoever had a celebrity on their behalf. And a lot of the giving was lousy. And so I felt felt like we really had an opportunity to do good work when we were at Charity Navigator of directing some of that funding 
to people who could really spend it well. Um, after doing that for seven years, I was ready to make a move. And, uh, you know, everybody wants to work on the foundation side. It's always easier to, to give money out, to invest in organizations than it is to, uh, to have to raise the money, obviously, which I suspect will be a major topic of, of this uh, show. And uh, luckily, I was offered the opportunity to come out to California to work for Michael and Jane Eisner to run the Eisner Foundation. Michael had recently left Disney. He was looking to professionalize this foundation, um, make it more strategic. And they were uh, kind enough to ask me to come out. They were looking for somebody who was well-versed in best practices, somebody who didn't have a development deal over at Sony, somebody whose brother wasn't running a nonprofit in town, somebody who came in with no attachments, who was known for hopefully being honest and being ethical and, uh, and wanting to make good charitable decisions. And, uh, and I've been at the Eisner Foundation for the last 10 years. <laughs> uh, you mentioned that your job was to come in to professionalize the foundation. So what did that process look like? Well, the foundation at the time, because the Eisners were focused on, on their business interests for the most part, was primarily reactionary. It was, you know, it was a foundation that didn't have a lot of best practices in place, a lot of strategic goals, a lot of ways of measuring things. Most of their grant making was when somebody was able to get to them and wanted funding, um, sometimes for good nonprofits, sometimes for those that could have used a little more vetting, um, and sometimes for, you know, for a table at a gala or that type of thing. But they really wanted to be more strategic and they really wanted to have practices and guidelines and policies in place, personnel. So it sounds like it was two two groups of things. Is One is operationalizing the actual business of the foundation. And then the other part of it was being really strategic with the philanthropy. Yeah, I think that's accurate. I mean, at its simplest, I run a very small business, um, you know, with people who work for us who show up and you have to manage their, you know, their desks and their vacation policies and, um, you know, take care of them and do annual reviews and all those types of things. Um, you have to make sure, you, you know, the copy machine is working. And so that has to happen um, so that you can do the other part. But the but the the larger piece was putting together the. Um, what is it that we're trying to do here at this foundation and how do we go about doing it? And that involves a lot of thinking and a lot of soul searching and a lot of talking to the board and a lot of talking to outside parties and a lot of assessing of where are the needs and where can you have impact um, within the world in which you're funding. So where did you end up in that process when you started doing it? Because I think the focus of the Eisner Foundation is, is really special. It's unique. Um, we feel that we are the only foundation in the United States investing exclusively in intergenerational solutions. Um, all of the organizations that we fund, um, no matter what it is that they're trying to achieve, are using an intergenerational tool, meaning they bring younger folks and older folks together, not only to serve um, the cause that they're working for, but to serve each other. So, you know, the perfect example is, is something like a uh, preschool inside a senior center um, where you have older folks, usually low income folks um, who are living there, who are isolated, who don't have a lot of interaction. And you put a preschool actually inside that community. And so those kids are able to interact with the older people um, and the older people are able to serve as mentors, as tutors, as role models, as foster grandparents. And hopefully you create some sort of exponential impact for the community where not only are the older people served, but the kids are served, but you have a nice asset in your neighborhood. Tell me about 
what the partnership between Engage and the Eisner Foundation has been like and what resonated with them about, uh, with you about their program. Well, it's a true intergenerational program. You're talking about senior housing where they have found a way to bring kids literally into the facility, into the building, and in some cases have built their senior housing right next to a school and so that the the kids can either walk in or the older people can walk in. So they they are interacting in great close proximity, which we found that true intergenerational programs to be intentional. It can't just be accidental. You can't just put people next to each other and hope for good things to happen. Um, So they've really kind of built it into the fabric. But I also like that, you know, that it's not just that they're trying to bring together old and young, that they're doing it around the arts. These are artist colonies, and these are great artists, many of these older people um, who have so much still to give back, um, but no one's asking them. And the folks that engage are not just asking, they're demanding it. In return for living here, we need you to mentor, we need you to teach, we need you to tutor these kids and bring the arts back into these underserved public schools. So um, I just really love the intentionality of Engage. They know who they are. Um, They're very comfortable in their own skin. They're not trying to be something they're not. And they have really good leadership and they're very thoughtful. Um, And so we're really proud to partner with them. One thing that impressed me about them that I couldn't get my head around until I was talking to them was they have so many variable groups. So like there's not just one way to teach art. There's not just one way to work with seniors. There's not one way to teach a classroom of kids. And there's so many variables And then they do it in all of these different types of communities all up and down the West Coast that I was was stunned, like, what's the structure there so that you can ensure quality across that? And it was interesting to talk to them about how they make sure it's a fulfilling experience on both sides. And that seemed to be the big one of the bigger feats of that organization. It's impressive because, you know, a lot of times we find that organizations can achieve really well one time. And then they try to put it in a box and take it somewhere else and something happens. It doesn't work out as well as it did in the first place. And they wonder, was it because we didn't have the right leader who came with it? Or is it because conditions for these people socioeconomically are different? Is it the traffic? Is it the school district? I don't know, but it didn't work in the second place. Why was it? Usually the problem is, is that rigidity? It's that people aren't adapting. They're not flexible. Um, And so one of the things I think Engage has done very well is that they have a core set of principles. These are the things that identify when it works, but they're not things like you have to have 18 people in a classroom no matter what, or everybody has to be at 86% of the poverty line or whatever these things are that I see other groups struggle with. They know what it is they're trying to do and they're able to adapt their programming depending on what the other conditions are that are there. And that just takes thoughtful leadership and not every organization, unfortunately, in the nonprofit sector has thoughtful leadership. Nancy is the Chief Operating Officer of Engage, where, according to your website, you supervise every aspect of wellness, lifelong learning, and creativity programming. That's a lot. It is a lot. There's there's a couple of others, too, that aren't included there that, that makes for a pretty comprehensive program. we we got to get the intergenerational in there and the community building, too. So tell us a little bit about Engage. So Engage is a a nonprofit organization that's contracted by owners and developers 
to provide programs to the residents of, of the communities that we serve. And, and our programs are our basics in terms of health and wellness, as well as, as lifelong learning and tech skills and exercise and, and those, those things that keep us healthy and, and in the mix. But we also provide programs in the arts and creativity and ways in which to build community with, through intergenerational opportunities, as well as uh, art classes and, and storytelling. We try to pull together folks who come to this place of, of their new home in a way that, that, that makes it for a, a home that, that, that creates a really good feeling. The communities we serve are, we started with older adult communities as, as, they, as our start, which, which then evolved into arts colonies where artists were attracted to the programs and, and, the, and the opportunities. And, and then we've also included families to, to our, our model as well as art galleries. So older adult communities, families, art galleries, and and the art colonies are, are both, we serve both older adults as well as families. How many different facilities are you working with right now? When you say different, we have 42 properties that we're currently serving, various models, family arts colonies, older adults, and family arts colonies. Mm-hmm. And 42 in different states too, right? Yes, that's true. We, we're based in Southern California. We've expanded to Minnesota as well as as Portland, Oregon, and we're now expanding our model in Northern California as well. So can you describe maybe a little bit before and after? So what it looks like before Engage comes in to work with a community and what it looks like afterwards? So coming into a property that does not have any programs where it's an older adult community and the folks are, are living there and, and a lot of them are, are displaced from their families and, and separated from friends. And this is a life change for them. They've come together to in a place that is new, perhaps even a new city. Come in and we survey everybody. We get an idea of what it is they've done in their past, what they like, what they have dreamed about doing. And then from these surveys, we tailor programs to, to suit their needs. And, and more than that, we bring in stuff that they've never even thought that they might like. So the art classes, the yoga, the meditation, things that you may have considered taking at some point or participating in your life at some point, you now have an opportunity to participate in, in your home without going anywhere free of charge. And what we found is that the sense of community and the sense of camaraderie with one another in pursuing something new or pursuing something that, that you, you've had a lifelong dream about or something that you've practiced in your past, you're now able to continue or at least experiment with now, has, has creates a sense of, of, of community. And, and with that comes a really nice ripple effect throughout the community, even the folks who don't choose to participate are are very happy and, and very engaged, if you will, just being near it. So passing by classes in progress or passing by parties or events where we're celebrating art classes or or someone's discovery of, of, of their their passion and their creative ways, being around that creates a really good feeling and, and from feedback we've received, folks actually do feel more connected, less depressed, and less isolated from, from participating and in, in watching others participate in events and classes. Can you talk about who teaches these classes? Who's bringing this content to the property or to the community? 
Yeah, we have a couple different ways we bring in classes. We have a staff of professional artists and teachers that can go from site to site quite easily. As as a staff member, we we circulate our art teachers and our yoga teachers, our our aqua fitness instructors, our fall prevention teachers. But then we independent contract with with professional teaching artists uh, in the community that may perhaps teach in local arenas or schools or facilities and are familiar with the area and they can come in and, and, and provide classes to us. We also get students, be it volunteers or folks doing community work or folks who just want to get a, a feel for the area, their passion in the arts and get a taste for teaching. So we have workshops that we often host with, with both sorts of instructors facilitating them. You talk about how tailored each program is to the community where where it is like you ju- we're just saying that you're surveying the residents and saying what what kind of things would you like offered and yet you're in 42 different places so how do you mm-hmm. tailor that program but then also maintain quality and consistency across all of those properties that's a good question. And, and, and it's, while it's a challenge to tailor programs, I think the consistency of, of our delivery and our process and procedure is in our mission. And, and the folks that we bring on to, to execute our mission all have the same mindset, which, which makes it really conducive to creating a situation that's healthy with, with potential. But in, in terms of tailoring the programs, I think what we found is there is some consistency and some similarities so that every one of the 42 properties doesn't look totally different from one another. For example, the properties that we serve for an older adult community that is not an arts colony, folks who've not been exposed to the arts in the past, have not had opportunity, but even maybe a bit intimidated by the arts, we we have a system in place where our art teachers approach the class the teaching of the class from a a bit of an indirect way at first, where it's not hands-on, here's the paintbrush, here's the paper, go to it, because that would be intimidating and we'd lose people. But instead, we we talk about creativity and what it means and and how folks are creative. And, you know, if you created a meal, if if you put together a meal back in the day with two ingredients to feed a family of five, that was pretty creative. And ways in which we can bring to mind the creativity in them, which 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 then perhaps creates an environment, a trust, a familiarity with the teacher and the people around you that that lends itself to now we can pick up the paintbrush and, and move forward. So there's some models that, that are similar, those that are not quite as comfortable with the arts, that we have some processes and procedures and kind of trick methods that we move through that with while others are, are quite unique, and, and it is about surveys and getting to know the folks, meeting them one-on-one, learning what they've done in their past, and, 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 and getting some buy-in from them, because a lot of our residents are really good facilitators and teachers. And, and if you can and take what you have at your sites and, and interest other folks in, in their interests and passions, you have, you have a, a whole lot more opportunity to, to connect. And is that where the intergenerational component comes in, from the teachers to the residents, or is it in other places as well? The intergenerational component, yes, that that is 
that does work. We do provide intergenerational classes, especially in the arts. That that seems to work really well. It, it takes the pressure off of someone to be sitting next to someone a couple of generations um, above or below you, where where it becomes more of a a a complementary uh, opportunity as opposed to you know this is what I'm doing and this is what you're doing. So community art classes that are intergenerational take take a, a different a different spin and it becomes more of a community building event more of a of a teamwork effort but we also found that a lot of our, our residents are really good teachers on their sites for the children that reside there so while they may have children they want to share what they're teaching their children with the other folks on site so we've had some really nice Nice teacher teacher workshops with residents on site who, who volunteer their time. Mm-hmm. Intergenerational opportunities often are, are, are really successful with the students in the area being uh, community service folks or colleges and universities nearby who have classes that require some sort of social connection or social community outreach. And we're those properties that we can that can make that happen. The, the challenge mostly comes from engaging folks to participate. It seems like if you can bring them to the table, then we can go anywhere from there. So I think the challenge is the initial uh, impression and the initial story that we tell to them to help them understand what our mission is and how important it is to be engaged and not to isolate yourself, to stay socially connected. So if we create those relationships, which seem so huge and conducive to participation, if we can create really strong relationships with our staff and our teachers to the residents, then the buy-in is there. We We can go all kinds of places with that. How do you train people to build those relationships? I think it's a lot by example, quite frankly. I, I believe our staff and our teachers are always sending the mes- message of, of compassion and kindness and, and respect to others. And it goes without saying that the folks who reside at our properties are coming from all walks of life with all different life experiences and life stories. Some of them not not at all familiar or or comfortable to others. So I think what our staff and our teachers are bringing to the table to to make for better relationship building is is the component of compassion and kindness and acceptance. it's It's huge in 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 being able to create an environment that's conducive to creativity, there's comfort and there's trust. Well, I think the other thing that you do, too, is you build in time for those relationships to happen. Do you, do you think that's true? Yeah, time is, is a really huge factor. <laughs> that's, that's interesting. There's, there's a story I often tell where a, a person is living in a building that has got an art class and it's been going on for quite some time and they're processing it. And it is this, this time that's needed. They're not going to the class. But they're thinking about it. They may step in the first week, take a look around. No, I can't stay. Got to go. Next week, they might come in. I can only stay five minutes. I don't want to do anything. Got to go. Third week, fourth week, same kind of thing. By the fifth week, they'll say, well, I'll just watch. And by maybe three months down the road, they're sitting in the class painting. So 
it's, it is really interesting that we allow that process to happen where there is no requirement. You don't have to do it in this way. Whatever way works for you, what your comfort level is, and we'll just be very inclusive and make sure that you can sit and watch the whole time if you like, or just stop in and, and comment and view kind of thing. So, yeah, the process and the time that it takes for anybody's process to um, unfold is, is something we're very respectful of. So how do you work with your board and your supporters to kind of set their expectations of it's not an instant change or, or how do you communicate that? Very much using the example that I just used. And, and it, it's, it's, it's kind of personal too, because I think everyone can relate to that process to something that's unfamiliar um, you do you do think about it. You do test the water. You do talk to other people who have done it. You, you become resourceful, and and it's everybody's process. And I do believe our board and our supporters are are fully on board with that because I think what they've seen is, given time, the numbers do change and do shift, and the the anecdotal. Um, uh, discussions that, that occur amongst the residents at the properties reflect that as well, where they might even say, look, six months ago, I, I would have never considered myself doing this, but here I am, go figure. I, I think those sorts of stories underscore that very time component. And there's another interesting thing that we're noting too, that folks who live at the properties that we provide programs at, but don't participate are still impacted with what's going on around them. And it's interesting to listen and watch the folks that come through who've never participated, would never come to the exercise class, but they love that it's happening. They, they proudly point out to friends and family that, you know, this happens here and we have exercise class. We have an art class over here and drawing is happening and poetry over there. Never attended, but they're living <laughs> in that environment. And, and it's so interesting that they're celebrating it. And perhaps the ripple effect is, is truly, truly in action there. But it, it, it's working in that way, too, which I found quite interesting. Yeah, you need a metric for passive enthusiasm. There you go. <laughs> there you go. It's working that way. It strikes me that you say, you know, it, it's about the stories and you have so many good stories of individuals and how people are that are just so relatable because you're like, yes, I do that. How do you make sure the stories from all your different locations make their way to you or make their way back to headquarters? The best part of a class, I think, which is truly um, inspiring, I think, and motivating to the participants is there is a beginning, middle, and end. And those ends are the times when we celebrate the the stories that come out or the art that comes out or or the experience that's shared just from participating. So those culminating events um, look like art shows or open mics or poetry reads or um, dance or theatrical performances. So they're celebrated when we invite the, invite the public and families and friends and and it gets photographed. Sometimes local press comes and, and, and highlights it in their local newspapers. Our program directors, our staff are always present, always making a very large presence for the community as well with these events. So these are the things that find their way to the report. For a 16-week class in art 
culminated in a show that was open to the public. Pictures were taken. The artists were seen with their pieces of work. Their bios were, were, were displayed and they told a story about how this piece came to be. And, and, and even sometimes their stories include, I could have never imagined I, I would have been in this class. I can't believe it. So those sorts of things are very documentable, and those those find their way to our to our reports and to our funders. Yeah, that's. I mean, I think it underscores the importance of a of a big finish, right? Of leading towards something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And do you find that yeah. those are valuable moments too for the teachers and volunteers? I I think you're right. Yeah, there the the celebration is is, is across the board where. The participants often give give the the recognition to the teachers and the folks who assisted. Um, it's it's a celebration across the board. I think everybody is really pleased that we've all come together and 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 shared something in in a passionate way. And I think it is the passion too that we tend to forget about or or under celebrate. This there may not be a finished piece. There may not be a poem to read. But you were in the, in the mix. You, you you have some ideas. You're you're motivated to perhaps do more to take the class again, and and that passion is is celebrated as well. Not just the the the, the physical piece or the, the open to the world kind of thing. It's mm-hmm. what's happening inside that, that that we try to capture too with everyone's progress. And those are the sorts of things we try to capture um, in our reporting as well. Yeah. And those those public facing events are not the end of your service with a community. It's it's just happens to be an endpoint of a yeah. class, right? Exactly. That's the end of a semester, end of a class, and and the teachers typically pause, regroup. The students might be surveyed as to where they want to take this class next. What might it evolve into? Do we want to take it to another level? Do we want to introduce um, a different theme? And the staff discusses with the teachers, how, how might this look? And then the students chime in how they think it might want to go. And we proceed again with another 12, 16-week class and culminate again. And, and, and the story continues. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think those are, there's two really smart choices in that. And one is to have a distinct end date and a public celebration. And then another really important choice you've made in there is to continuously improve it every time. It's not just a break. It's a pause and um, recalibrate. Yeah. Yeah. And it gives opportunity to, for, for folks who have been thinking about coming to a class, it's a new start and it's a new invitation. It's a new group. So there's more opportunity for greater participation. And it also gives folks the, the chance to have can have been taking this class to continue and even mentor the new folks that come in. We find that to be really, really a, a nice um, piece of programming where the residents actually bring in a newcomer, someone who's who's been not quite as confident and, and take them under their wing and, and mentor them through it. So it becomes a, a dual teaching and learning experience. Is it as much fun as you thought it would be being on the foundation side? No job is as fun (laughs) as you think it is um, on the outside. Um, We get around a thousand LOIs a year. People who want 
funding from the Eisner Foundation, and we make about 60 grants a year. So that means that essentially every year I tell 940 people, you're not worthy of our funding. Um, so it's kind of like being Santa Claus. If you showed up in a neighborhood and you gave one toy um, to one kid, and then you told every other kid in the neighborhood that they couldn't have a toy, that one kid's really happy, and that's really fun to invest in that kid. Um, but you have to say no a lot. So you need to have a thick skin. So it's it's a great job. The Eisners have given us um, a great opportunity to run the organization. Really smart people, really compassionate people. It's an honor to work there. But no job is as good as it looks on the outside. <laughs> Noted. Um, so what's your impression overall of what's going on in the nonprofit sector these days? I think it's in an okay place. You know, it makes me the the Grinch at the table always. But I think that the I think that 2008 was good for the sector. Um, I think that there are too many nonprofits. Um, and I think that a lot of the ones that um, were at the fringes went under or were forced to consolidate in or recession. merge in some way um, in 2008 during the recession. And I think that was a good thing. I think that we had the herd needed to be thinned a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that even those that survived 2008, um, the recession, I think we're forced to come out with a new outlook and around efficiencies, keeping it lean, looking for mergers, looking for acquisitions, looking for redundant services, looking for sharing back offices. It's never going to be as lean as it should be. But I do think that people are at least talking about that now. And I think that's a good thing. I also think I've been impressed with the level of advocacy that is kind of elevated. Um, and perhaps it's done that out of fear or response to the current administration. But I think that we've seen some real courage in the nonprofit sector and some people who are willing to stand up and advocate on behalf of people who are under siege. And I've been impressed by that. I mean, I think that, you know, if you don't have courage in the nonprofit sector, what are we doing here? You know, you might as well, you know, go work at, uh, you know, McKinsey or, you know, or Dunkin Donuts. Um, but um, you I know. don't know why you said you feel like the Grinch at the table. Um, for that? I don't know. I'm, I'm such a fun guy. People love to have me over. <laughs> you mentioned before you thought when you started Charity Navigator that the state of giving was lousy. What did you mean by that? I don't think the state of giving was lousy. Or, so, or that a lot of giving was lousy. I, I guess think I that a lot say. of the reactionary giving in the event of a national crisis is lousy. Um, and I think that's just because um, anytime people react impulsively um, and react with their heart and not necessarily their head, you take the risk of the giving not being particularly smart or particularly strategic. And we had a run there, you know, between the tsunami and the hurricane and the earthquakes and 9-11, um, where it seemed like there were a lot of disasters that were on TV on a regular basis. And people decided that they should give because that's what you do in times of crisis. But they didn't pull, they didn't create new funding when they made that give. Basically, um, most people, when they give $100 to the Red Cross because they saw somebody sitting on their roof as the waters approached and, you know, bless you for making that gift, it usually comes out of your other charitable giving that you would have given later in the year. And oftentimes that charitable giving that you give later in the year is somebody who's closer to 
to your neighborhood, somebody who you know, somebody who you've seen the impact of their work. Um, and so if you're giving to something you saw on TV because you were motivated by your heart and motivated by your patriotism and you don't get that gift right, that may be $100 that is not going to be spent for making the world a better place in the way that the $100 that it had you held it and given it to your local soup kitchen or your local food bank or your local homeless shelter in your community that you knew maybe would have been spent better. So I'm always, I'm always wary. I don't want people to be hard hearted, but ask yourself, you know, am I giving out of guilt or am I giving because I can do something strategic here? If there's something strategic you can do and there are people who need your help and you can make it better for them, Go ahead and give, give to your you know heart's content. But if you're just giving because you think you're supposed to give, or because the images on your TV are heartbreaking, um, and that means that you're not going to give to somebody who's doing really good work in your local area, or you know your local school, or your local house of worship, you know, ask yourself: Is this the best use of my charitable dollar? Uh, would you count this year's kind of uh, explosion of Facebook fundraisers in that kind of giving? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it's reactionary. It's a hundred percent reactionary. And I mean, you know, some of it is, you know, the, you know, some of it is inspiring, but for the, for the vast majority of people who are giving because they saw something on TV or they saw their on something on their computer, it really is usually the last item in their budget. Um, they're not going to stop having a, you know, a double Frappuccino so that they can give to the ice bucket challenge. Um, if they give to the ice bucket challenge, it probably means that they're not going to give to their local little league. Um, but you know, you have to ask yourself, is that, you know, is that best serving the public that they're trying to serve? Right. Well, and also when those things get really popular in public, you get these, sometimes you get these mega gifts to very tiny organizations, which can also be harmful. Yeah. Donor intent is a, is a scary thing sometimes. (laughs) So what do you think, um, you know, one of the things we want to do on this podcast is talk about, you know, how good nonprofits run, how do you do that thing that you're supposed to do? So from your seat, what do you think something that well-run organizations have in common? Do you see things that they're all doing or things you wish they were all doing? Well, I would say I, I think there's two. Um, I think there's two fundamental things that most great nonprofits share. One, one is 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 good leadership, and that doesn't necessarily mean the great charismatic leader that's standing out there that's motivating everybody. Some of the best leaders in the nonprofit world are really quiet, really unassuming people um, who don't have giant personalities, but they're good at what they do. But more specifically, when I talk about leadership, I think the board and the staff need to be on the same page. We have this weird tension in the nonprofit world where, um, theoretically the board is in charge, but usually the staff is running the organization. Um, and I think the organizations that really do well are those where the board, especially the board chair and the CEO are on the same page with the same vision and, and the same way of, of reaching that, those outcome goals. And more importantly, they know what each other's role is. The CEO's job is to run the day-to-day organization. The board chair's job is to support that CEO and kind of set a longer-term goal, um, set a vision, and perhaps do a heavy lifting on the fundraising, at least at the highest level. When they start messing with each other's worlds, you find difficulties develop. But when they're on the same page and they know what they're doing, I think that that's, that's something that most good nonprofits share. The other one is just kind of a clarity of purpose, uh, you know, an obvious mission. 
know what you do, know what you do well, and don't spend your time chasing dollars, even if they're real dollars, if it's going to take you away from what it is that you do well. There are plenty of nonprofits out there that do what you don't do. And so those organizations that know what it is that they specialize in and can really stay focused on that every day from the CEO all the way down to you know whoever's opening the mail, which in a lot of nonprofits is the CEO. It sounds, sounds like uh, CEO job to me. But having everybody on the same page and knowing exactly what that organization stands for, I think really leads itself to success. Excellent. Um, well, we'll talk about boards in episode three. And next week, we are going to talk about nonprofit fundraising events. So have you ever been to one? A fundraising event? Yeah, I don't know. Have you, mm-hmm. have you ever gone? Uh, one or two. Okay, good. We'll talk about that next week. Great. Look forward to it. That's all for today's episode of How We Run. Please check out goodwaysinc.com to find past episodes of this podcast and other tips about working in nonprofit. If you have any questions you want me to ask a funder on this podcast, you can tweet me at goodwaysinc. Please subscribe to How We Run on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and leave us a rating and review. Thank you for listening. I'm Julie Lacature, and we'll see you next week for another new episode.